Our psalm of the day is Psalm 62. For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will, you all, will all of you attack a man to batter him? Like a leaning wall, a tottering fence. They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. For God alone, O oh my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. He, is, he only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up, they are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in exhortation, extortion, sorry. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love, for you will render to a man according to his work. All men are like glass. Let's try that again. All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall. We are like glass, too. Our gospel lesson this morning comes from Matthew 8, beginning in verse 14. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the, other, to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me. And leave the dead to bury their own dead. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even winds and sea obey him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord God, we do ask that you would give, in, give us insight into your word. We need ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to receive. So we ask that you would do that to us, to open our eyes, give us ears to hear, open our hearts to receive this portion of your gospel and to apply it to our lives. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The other day I was discussing what it's been like to be a father with a friend of mine, and there are some of you who have been fathers much longer than I have, and, much, and some of you have been grandfathers longer than I have been a father, and so I presume to know very little. Uh, but I do know one thing, 
that nothing could have prepared me for this. I have come to the realization that I could have gone to all of the Christian conferences, that I could have read all of the Christian books on parenting, and I still would not have been prepared for sleepless nights, for dirty diapers, and, a, and tantrums from a toddler. I would have never been prepared for it. There's nothing on earth that could prepare me for something like this. And honestly, most of life is like that. We, we enter into marriage and we don't know what we're getting ourselves into, and so we learn along the way. We have friendships that we don't know what we're getting ourselves into, and so we learn along the way. Even our vocations, our jobs, we learn along the way. We learn as we go. And this is true of the Christian life, of, of those who follow Jesus. We have been compelled to follow him. He's called us into relationship with him to be his disciples And there's something about him that draws us in, and so you follow. You follow Jesus because there's something about him that draws you in. But you soon learn that you don't know everything, and in fact, you actually don't know anything. You don't really know what you've gotten yourself into. And so you realize you have to sit at the feet of your Savior to listen to him tell you what it means to follow him. And that's what he's doing in Matthew 8. In the Sermon on the Mount, he has expounded kingdom life for his followers, what it looks like to bring the kingdom to bear on the earth. And then the first teaching we get from Jesus after his Sermon on the Mount is what it means to be his followers in, in, chapter, or in verse, verses 18 through 20, 22. Because, and we have to learn along the way because uh, being a Christian, being a follower of Jesus does not come naturally to us. It's not something that, we, uh, that, that just clicks on for us once we've become a Christian. We've been compelled into this relationship with him. And so we have to learn from Jesus as we walk on this pilgrimage with Jesus. And so what do we learn? Begs the question, what are the marks of the followers of Jesus? After you have been compelled into relationship, what is it that you discover along the way? Well, the first mark that we see in verses 18 through 20 is that Jesus' followers relinquish earthly securities. We see as a, a scribe here actually comes to Jesus and he calls him teacher. He says, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, uh, this is the kind of guy that you want on your team, isn't it? He says, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. I was in a college ministry that emphasized uh, disciples as fat disciples, F-A-T, faithful, available, and teachable. And it seems like this guy actually like, meets all of the criteria. He's there. He's present. He's willing. He offers his allegiance to Jesus. This is the guy you think you want on your team. The problem, though, is that something seems a little off with his pledge. No one has yet come to Jesus and offered themselves. No one has yet come to Jesus and said, I will follow you. Jesus has been the one calling people out of their vocations, out of their lives, to follow him. And when people actually come to Jesus, they're asking him to work. They don't, uh, they don't profess to follow him. They actually say, Jesus, will you do something? Will you heal us? Will you cast out demons? And so they're coming in desperate need of, uh, of Jesus. But we, what we hear here is, is an offer, an offer of allegiance. And it seems actually to be quite, quite presumptuous. He calls him teacher, which is interesting to note because the va- when the disciples address Jesus in the book of Matthew, they address him as Lord. 
the folks who address him as teacher are the scribes and the Pharisees, his opponents, those who don't, don't acknowledge his claim on their lives, those who don't acknowledge him as the Son of God, those who don't acknowledge him as the Messiah for Israel. And so this is a presumptuous offer from, uh, from this scribe. It's as if the scribe thinks Jesus needs his help to have ministry success, or at worst, he sees Jesus as a great teacher and a great rabbi, and he's just going to piggyback on Jesus' ministry success. He's using Jesus to get ahead in this life. He's using Jesus as a step on the scribe's proverbial religious ladder. The scribe is using him for his own gain. His eagerness to follow Jesus actually disguises his ambition. And this is the temptation for all ministry leaders, whether you're in the church serving in ministry leadership here or in a parachurch ministry. It's the temptation of ministry leaders to think that if we follow Jesus right, everything will be successful. And it's the temptation for the Christian to think that if we follow Jesus, we will get comfort, we will get security, we'll get ease of life. If, if only we follow him properly, we will be successful. And Jesus' response is actually quite profound. That foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. This response pushes back on the very thing the scribe believes Jesus will give him, success and comfort. Jesus teaches this scribe, he teaches the rest of his disciples, and he teaches us this morning that to follow him means that we relinquish earthly security and trust in God with all aspects of life. And so my question for you is this morning, are you following Jesus because you think he'll take you somewhere? That he's going to take you somewhere in this life and provide you with comfort and success, with security and tranquility? Are you following him out of ambition? Or are you following him out of humility? So the first mark of Jesus' followers is that we relinquish earthly security. And the second is that we remain fiercely loyal. Look with me at verses 21 and 22. This is an interesting request and actually a really difficult response from Jesus. One of his disciples, uh, this guy is, is known as a disciple. It's what Matthew calls him. He's not a scribe. He's not a Pharisee. He's not anyone else. He's, he's somebody who's, who's, who Jesus has called and who is committed to follow him. He says to Jesus, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Now this request actually seems quite reasonable, doesn't it? It seems reasonable to want to go bury your father. It seems reasonable, and it's in accordance with an agreement with God's law to honor your father and mother. It's in agreement with general like goodness, caring for the dead after they've passed. And it's also in agreement with, with Jewish custom. There would be a, uh, a, a time of mourning after you buried your family member. And if taken at face value, Jesus' uh, response that leave the dead to bury the dead seems to cut against the grain of all of those. It seems to cut, if we see it at first glance, to cut against the grain of God's law, against general goodness and kindness, and against custom. But what we have to remember is that Jesus sees below the surface of things. Jesus sees below the surface of this guy's request. And Jesus' response actually indicates that he sees something in this disciple that's causing him to hesitate. 
Jesus sees hesitancy in this disciple, that there's something that is compromising his allegiance to his Savior. There's something compromising his allegiance to Jesus and to his Lordship. He detects insecurity and insincerity. He's, he detects that the disciples' request is a qualified commitment to his Lordship. If, you're, if your response to Jesus is, I will follow you, but let me go first and do X, you have a compromised allegiance. You have a qualified commitment to Jesus' Lordship. And that's what he detects in this disciple, and he will have none of it. He calls for fierce loyalty. With Jesus, you can't have one foot in the door and one foot out. You can't have Jesus one day and something or someone else the next. He will have none of it. There's no room for a compromised allegiance. So he calls for fierce loyalty. Now, I heard a story a while back about uh, Babe Ruth's last season as a professional baseball player in 1935. His, his career spanned about uh, a little over two decades, 22 years from 1914 to 1935. And he's arguably the best baseball player of all time. He, uh, he's incredible. And in his 1935 season, after spending the majority of his career with the Yankees, he was traded to the Boston Braves. Go Bravos. Now, at this point, uh, Babe Ruth had lost a significant step in his playing game. He was, uh, he was 40 years old, and, uh, and for a professional athlete, that was, that was old. He had lost a significant step. Please don't, that's not, I'm not uh, offending you there, I promise. Uh, but for a professional athlete, he was 40 years old, and he was well on his way out the door of professional baseball. And in one particular game, they were playing the Cincinnati Reds in Cincinnati, and he had a particularly terrible game. In one inning, he had, uh, he had, his errors piled up to cost the Braves five runs, meaning they were five points down front to, to the Cincinnati Reds. And as he, as he walked off with his head hung in shame, you could hear the boos and the ridicule and the mocking from the fans. They were mocking the best baseball player to have ever played. And the next thing you know, you see this little boy jump the fence. And with tears streaming down his face, he runs over to the babe and he hugs his leg. In the midst of this mockery, in the midst of, of people mocking the best baseball player to have walked the planet, this little boy puts them all to shame. This little boy remained faithful to his favorite baseball player, even when life got bad, even when life was tough. And what that little boy teaches us is what it looks like to remain faithful, that even when life seems to contradict what we believe and what we hope for, that God is still in control and he calls for fierce loyalty. We have no room for compromised allegiances or mockery. Now, this all sounds really exciting uh, and really powerful to, to give our lives to Jesus like this, to, uh, to, to offer him our fierce loyalty. But it's also really overwhelming because if we're honest, we are the scribe. 
and we are the disciple. We offer Jesus our allegiance with a tinge of ambition and a hint of hesitancy. We are the scribe and the, and the, uh, and the disciple. And so what would compel us? What would compel us to follow Jesus with this type of tenacity that he calls for? Well, two reasons we see in this passage. The first is that he speaks with the authority of God. We see in verses 23 to 27 this really intense episode of Jesus calming a storm with a word. And the vast majority of the time we look at this episode and we tend to focus on the lack of faith of the disciples. We tend to focus on these guys who don't get it, who who haven't quite understood when Jesus calls them, uh, oh, you of little faith. We focus in on that. But if we focus on that, what we actually miss is the point of that passage. The point of the passage is not challenging the disciples' faith. Now, that might be a minor point. But the point of the passage is to emphasize the authority and the identity of Jesus. Let's read it together one more time. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. Now, these are the ones who are committed to to following him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even winds and sea obey him? You see, we see here these disciples who have... Uh, who have committed themselves to Jesus, who have been called out of their vocations into this new vocation of following Jesus. But along the way, as they're crossing the Sea of Galilee, a storm rolls in. And it seems to be like a quick storm, because if you saw a storm on the horizon, you wouldn't get in the boat. And so it's a storm that rolls in rather quickly. And it's not just a storm, but Matthew calls it a great storm. And remember that some of these disciples were fishermen. They were skilled in fishing and boating on the Sea of Galilee. And the sea is well known for its violent, sudden storms. It's because the sea actually sits within a bowl of, of large hills that, uh, that we like to call mountains sometimes. And the surface of the water actually sits at nearly 700 feet below sea level. And so the hot air that sits on the surface of the water mixed with the cool air on the mountains actually creates for really turbulent and treacherous and dangerous storms. And this storm was particularly dangerous. So crazy that men who were trained as boaters and fishermen called for help from a guy who was trained as a carpenter. Now, if they had holes in the boat and Jesus had wood, maybe. But it's a storm. And they're saying, Lord, save us. We're perishing it actually, if you look at, uh, I generally don't like to do this, but if you look at the, the Greek, it's actually, save, Lord, perish. And they're, like, they're, they're saying as fast as they can, Lord, save us, we're about to die. And they were able to call him for help, not because he was a carpenter, but because he had already proven himself. He had already worked miracles. He had already spoken a word and people were healed. And so what does Jesus do? He speaks a word to the wind and to the sea. And as if they were alive, they obey him. He replaces a great storm with great calm. And we're meant actually to remember and to hearken back to Genesis 1. 
that when the earth, when God made the heaven and, and the earth, and the earth was without form and it was void, and there, and there was darkness covering the face of the deep, that God spoke and said, let there be light, and there was light. That when God speaks, creation can do nothing but listen. It has to listen because it has to obey his voice because he is the creator. And so what happens? Jesus speaks a word and creation listens. Creation obeys because he speaks with the authority of God. And if he speaks with that kind of authority, you have nothing to worry about when relinquishing your earthly security. You have nothing to worry about when giving Jesus all of your allegiance and remaining fiercely loyal to him because he speaks with the authority of God. And the second reason we see is in verses 14 through 17, and really the first, uh, the first half of, of chapter 8. We see here that, uh, that, that Jesus loves with the compassion of God. So he, he not only speaks with God's authority, but he also loves with God's compassion. Peter's mother-in-law was, was lying there sick with a fever, and we tend to gloss over the fact that she had a fever, as if fevers weren't a big deal, but fevers were a big deal in the first century. And yet, they're definitely a big deal now, but they were a significant deal in the first century. They didn't have modern medicine to help curb the symptoms of fevers. They didn't have modern medicine to help curb the, the, uh, the common cold, symptoms of the common cold, let alone flu or malaria. And so some people would survive fevers. Some people would, would, would be okay, but then others would die within four to, four to five days because they were significant. And what we see here is not that Jesus cleanses, cleans his hand with hand sanitizer uh, and stays on the other side of the room. What we see here is that Jesus touches her. That with this fever, Jesus touches her and she's healed. And not only does he heal her, but, but people bring their friends from all over, and, and Jesus heals them. He heals. That evening, uh, it's said that they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. And not only that, but just before this, he healed a leper. Look at verses 2. Look, verse 2 of chapter 8. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord... If you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. So not only does he speak the word, but he actually touched this leper. And then right after that, he, he healed a centurion's servant just by saying the words. So what we see here is uh, that these are certainly displays of Jesus' authority and Jesus' power over creation and over sickness and over illness and disease and, over, and even over demons, that he speaks with the authority of God. It's not only that, but we get a glimpse into the compassion of God. That he's in the business of taking our illnesses and bearing our diseases. That Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, to heal the brokenhearted and to bind up their wounds. He came to heal the brokenness of humanity because he has the compassion of God. So friends, not only does Jesus have the power to care for you, but he also has the love and the compassion to do so. 
He has the affection for you to actually bind up your wounds and ultimately to take them on himself. He took our illnesses and bore our our diseases. I'll close with this. On occasion, I like to think of discipleship and following Jesus in word pictures. Uh, And a particularly excellent word picture I find uh, in in C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. He says this, uh, Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what, he, what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew those jobs needed to, be do, needed to be done, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and doesn't seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting up an extra floor there, running up towers and making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. You see, friends, the Christian life is similar. God calls us into relationship with him. He he compels us to follow Jesus, and at first you think you know what you've gotten yourself into. You think you know who Jesus is. But then along the way, you discover something quite different. You discover that God has called you to let go of your security and your ambition and to trust him with everything you've got and to remain fiercely loyal to him. But you, don't, you not only learn what's required of you, you actually discover who Jesus is as you follow him in this pilgrimage you discover that he, is, he has much more authority than you could have first anticipated. Not only that, he is infinitely more loving than you could have ever imagined. And you discover it along the way. Hold on to your Savior and follow him. Let's pray. God, we do... Thank you this morning for being the authoritative one who can speak to creation and it must obey. But Lord, we also thank you that you're the one who loves us more than we could have ever imagined. And so we ask for your power. Uh, we ask for the spirit to, to empower us to follow you with all of ourselves. Would we not be the scribe and this disciple? Would we not be those who offer you our allegiance with a tinge of ambition and a hint of hesitancy? But would we give you all of ourselves because you are quite worthy of everything we have? We ask in Jesus' name, amen.